0: back to principles of environmental toxicology I'm Greg Muller once again the instructor for the course well each discipline each sub-discipline has its own uh, basis in terms of the words it uses uh, how it executes uh, a particular area of study and toxicology is no different today's lecture concepts in toxicology is again a little bit more of the fundamentals of toxicology and environmental toxicology, help you lay a foundation uh, so that when we use certain words such as acute, uh, chronic, uh, for example, in terms of toxicosis, you'll know kind of what we mean, the context again, uh, the definitions. Uh, Some people will refer to this as jargon, uh, science-speak, perhaps. What it is, in fact, it's efficiency of the communication. Uh, What each discipline does is it establishes a lexicon to describe those concepts that are most important to further study in that particular discipline. This is what we're going to do today. In terms of our learning objectives, what we're going to do is define toxicology and toxicity. What a wonderful place to start in terms of a course, uh, Principles of Environmental Toxicology. We'll try to discuss uh, some different types of toxic responses. We won't go through a, a very large list. We'll actually save that for a further lecture where we'll talk about the array of particular endpoints of toxicosis uh, that uh, may uh, I- impact an organism. We'll explain how toxicants are classified, for example, uh, pesticides, uh, that is a Uh, A chemical uh, series that uh, kills pests, if you will. Uh, We're going to try to describe the phases of toxicosis to give you an understanding, an introductory understanding to things like toxicodynamics, uh, toxicomechanics, uh, the absorption phase, uh, the elimination phase, for example. We'll try to explain some concomitant exposure influences. For example, If an organism is in a state of ill health, it may not have the adequate biochemical physiological response mechanisms to fight off a low-grade toxicity. And so we'll talk about that as well. The idea is to develop an introductory understanding of uh, toxicity and toxicity testing. What we're not going to do, we're going to do it in the reading, is actually talk about uh, or discover a little bit more about, uh, for instance, the rat trials, the rodent assays that we've introduced uh, that are uh, key in terms of identifying some of the potential toxic impacts, critical lethal doses, critical effective doses uh, in terms of all sorts of chemicals uh, that we are exposed to in our daily life, including things that are in our food system by choice, things like food additives, uh, the colors that make a uh, food product a little bit more attractive, give us a sensory uh, uh, feedback, uh, as well as the uh, exogenous substances uh, that come in uh, through nature via contaminant, uh, contamination. All of these are subjects for today's concepts and toxicology lecture. What is toxicology? It is the science that deals with the adverse effects of chemicals in living systems. Uh, There is also a sub-area of that definition, uh, perhaps a sub-definition, that also discusses the probability that those toxic endpoints will happen. Uh, One of the things that's important, and we'll get to that as we discuss the quantitative relationship between dose and response, is that you can be dosed with a toxicant but below an effect level, below a response level. In other words, your system has the capacity to detoxify or to not have a clinical uh, endpoint. Uh, And So we'll talk about these quantitative relationships, uh, indeed. Now, in terms of the classifications of toxicology, uh, descriptive toxicology tells us about the what. Uh, Mechanistic toxicology tells us about the why of toxicology. And analytical toxicology, which you see in the uh, CSI-type programs with laboratory analyses of poisons, for example, in a criminal investigation. This is analytical toxicology. It tells us how much. We screen for potential toxicants uh, in terms of uh, potential poisoning. Uh, And we do this also in terms of looking at risk assessment. What is the concentration of potential toxicants in, for example, our air, our water, and our food? Definition of uh, toxicity is also helpful, and this is the degree to which a substance can harm human or animals. And so there is a variability, and we'll define some of the variability towards the end of today's lecture in terms of things that are low toxicity versus highly toxic uh, chemicals. Uh, If you can at home, people tell you how to can so that you uh, can prevent the appearance of a bacterial toxin, uh, for example. Uh, So these things, uh, and this is a highly lethal bacterial toxin. Um, toxicity as, uh, can be uh, subclassified as an acute, subchronic, or chronic toxicity and actually there is even some subclassifications within those terms. Uh, subacute, for example. And we're not going to go into all of them. Uh, we will define uh, these three, however. Acute toxicity involves uh, the harmful effects in an organism through a single or short-term exposure. The focus here is on exposure. Now, recognize that, uh, for example, uh, in this uh, uh, colorful illustration of the death of Socrates, uh, in my Fulbright experience in Greece, I was able to visit the prison of Socrates. Uh, We have a Socrates Lecture in this course. uh, And one of the reasons we named it the Socrates Lecture, because his untimely death was by execution and the choice of execution in ancient Athens for people outspoken such as Socrates, was by drinking uh, an elixir of conium. Uh, conium being the active alkaloid in poison hemlock. Okay? Now this is an acute exposure, right, so you, you drink the cup of this extremely uh, toxic brew and uh, you have a, a very, very uh, acute uh, toxicosis, if you will. Um, There are, for example, uh, acute exposures very short term. You brush up against a poison ivy. uh, That exposure can have uh, a toxic end effect that lasts, uh, in some cases, minutes, uh, days, weeks, months. There are other sorts of acute exposures where one exposure, and I like to give the example of, uh, for instance, delayed neuropathy from exposure to an organophosphorus insecticide where you may have a very large-scale acute exposure, one-time exposure, accidental farm worker uh, accident, for example, that has chronic toxicity for the rest of that individual's life in terms of delayed neuropathy. Okay? So acute exposures can have acute end effects, but also chronic end effects. And there's a little bit of difference, but the acute toxicity is one that is extremely rapid in terms of the onset of toxicosis from the exposure Subchronic toxicity is the ability of a toxic substance to cause effects for more than one year, and that's, that's a, a, a little bit of a sloppy term in terms of uh, putting actual months on it, but it gives you some instance we're talking about on the order of months or short years, uh, but less than a lifetime. And so subchronic is something that uh, it's uh, the effects level uh, that is uh, extending, and it typically it's associated with either... Uh, an acute or a series of short amounts of dosing, uh, sometimes uh, small amounts of uh, dosing. But typically when we're talking about chronic toxicity, we're talking about something that is longer term exposure, longer term toxicity. Chronic toxicity is best defined as the ability of a substance or a mixture of substances to cause harmful effects over an extended period. And this is characterized usually by repeated doses. And so this is where, for example, if you drank contaminated water from your faucet, and this was uh, something that was undiscovered for a long period of time, this would be kind of a chronic exposure. Okay, low level typically. Uh, And and quite often, these chronic sort of toxicoses uh, are not necessarily life-threatening because uh, what happens is uh, uh, if you... uh, uh, are exposed to an acutely toxic substance, uh, you're going to have acute toxicosis, an acute episode, which usually makes you stop or limit that particular behavior. Chronic toxicosis quite often is one that builds up over time. Uh, mercury toxicosis in terms of uh, neurotoxicity from mercury is something that typically is a foodborne intoxication over a long period of time, typically uh, on the order of years. Uh, this effect in terms of the exposure and the effects um, will uh, last uh, towards the lifetime of a particular exposed individual. One of the things we want to do in toxicology, just to give you a background, again just to kind of familiarize yourself with all of the, the sub-disciplines, if you will, of, of toxicology, is talk about the types of areas of study and the types of people uh, that uh, explore the interaction, uh, the interface, if you will, between chemistry and biology. Uh, on this list, as we go through this, many students will identify with uh, uh, an area of interest in their own academic preparation. For example, wildlife biologists will have an interest in wildlife toxicology. But in terms of how people uh, kind of exercise their scholarship, uh, their study, uh, their investigations, or just uh, their job in terms of uh, examining the different areas of toxicology, There are subcategories of toxicologists that study target organs or target systems. For example, we probably have all heard of neurotoxins and the people uh, in the area of study of neurotoxicology. We have genetic toxicology, reproductive toxicology. Uh, immunotoxicology, the ability of chemical substances to have an a, impact on your immune system. Typically that impact is a, uh, uh, the ability of a chemical to diminish your immune response to infectious agents. Endocrine toxicology becoming more and more important. You probably have seen uh, incidences reported in the media. It's very uh, uh, highlighted uh, quite often in magazine articles or newspaper articles when scientists identify, for example, uh, uh, confined uh, populations, uh, perhaps in a lake or uh, sometimes even in a reach of a river, uh, of fish that have... Uh, had some endocrine disruption or estrogenic effects, uh, allowing for uh, the, uh, for example, appearance of female secondary sexual characteristics in chromosomally identified males of the species. We can also examine uh, toxicology uh, from a target species, target systems point of view. Aquatic toxicologists will deal uh, primarily, I would have to say, with fish, although uh, many things aquatic, uh, the life aquatic. uh, environmental toxicologists are a broader subdiscipline. Uh, these folks look at the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of chemicals in our environment. Wildlife toxicologists uh, typically come from a wildlife biology background, animal management background, but look at the interaction, uh, for example, of uh, humans and industrial uh, pollution uh, as well as naturally occurring uh, toxicants. And They get to manage quite often the relationship between uh, chemicals as nutrients or uh, vitamins and minerals in terms of the array of concentrations from nutritional deficiency to toxicity of those particular uh, minerals. For example, if we have grazing uh, ungulates uh, that are grazing in an area of uh, naturally occurring high selenium like uh, South Dakota, there is a potential for toxicosis. Those same uh, species of animals grazing in the higher elevations of the Rocky Mountains uh, in Colorado may actually have uh, selenium deficiency because of the lack of selenium in the particular forage in that particular area. Veterinary toxicology is typically a diagnostic clinical um, uh, area of expertise. These individuals are typically DVMs that have additional uh, study in the area of toxicology, typically a Masters and more often than not a PhD. uh, In toxicology or a related field, these individuals will work with clinicians Uh, in terms of the practical diagnosis of potential toxicosis in animal populations. So this can be uh, someone's cat who ate a bottle of aspirin, uh, a dog that ate chocolate bars, uh, cattle that broke a fence and got into a potato field and have alkaloid poisoning, uh, or uh, many other sorts of potential wildlife or uh, production livestock or pet animal toxicoses. We can also classify toxicologists and the subdisciplines of toxicology in terms of selected responses. Uh, Teratology looks at uh, malformation of the conceptus uh, based on uh, some sort of toxic impact on molecules of life, DNA, RNA, and uh, carcinogenesis, uh, oncologists, uh, if you will, that study uh, cancer and uh, the initial stages of cancer that are related to chemical exposure. Now in terms of the various fields that people go into in toxicology, applied toxicology fields uh, include occupational toxicology. Uh, I'll often say it in this course that uh, uh, workplace exposure is one of the greatest areas of concern because this is day in, day out, eight hour exposure of airborne contaminants in the workplace if you're in a manufacturing environment. Uh, People get concerned, for example, with fumes coming out of uh, Xerox copy machines. there's been some concern over the past uh, couple decades about those sorts of things. All of the chemicals that we are around on a constant and consistent basis in terms of exposure, uh, but workplace exposure, for example, uh, in farm workers and pesticides, uh, this is a high level, high concentration, concentrated product exposure in terms of pesticides and agricultural chemicals, as opposed to you and I that might have, uh, get exposed to trace residues in a food product uh, that we're consuming. So it's a different level of exposure, a different dose, if you will. Clinical toxicologists look at uh, the uh, toxic-induced diseases and antidotes, uh, sometimes trained in emergency medicine, poison control centers. Uh, This is typically a a human uh, medical uh, environment. Uh, these are the individuals that called, get called into consultancies uh, in terms of rapid response to uh, either accidental or, in some cases, uh, intentional or suicidal ingestion, uh, and sometimes it's things like drug overdoses uh, from uh, people that do uh, various types of uh, illicit drugs. There are forensic toxicologists, again, uh, folks that uh, are involved in follow-up of uh, toxicoses uh, as related, especially quite often, to determining causes of death uh, in a uh, criminal uh, environment or potential legal environment. Uh, Forensic toxicologists also look at environmental toxicology. Uh, For example, if you are in a coastal community and you have an oil slick wash up on your shore. Uh, There's a great uh, uh, amount of ocean out there. Where did this uh, oil come from? And uh, forensic uh, environmental toxicologists will actually profile the petroleum hydrocarbons uh, in that particular uh, oil slick and try to trace it back or fingerprint it uh, to a particular source, uh, whether that's a source of oil or a tanker. Regulatory toxicologists are the ones uh, that uh, review the data sets uh, submitted by various industries uh, that are uh, intending to use chemicals in the marketplace. These chemical uses can be, uh, for example, agricultural chemicals. They can be pharmaceuticals. Uh, They can be industrial chemicals in terms of new uh, chemicals that might impact your living environment or our environment as a total. What these individuals do is they take a look at uh, very broad-based sources, pathways or receptors and controls. They try to look at uh, life cycle assessment, they look at the medical uh, or the clinical data, the animal studies. They have certain key indicators of potential toxicosis. Regulatory toxicologists will be concerned primarily about protection of human health, but there is also a protection of the environment uh, initiative in terms of regulatory toxicology here in the United States. What is quite interesting is, is how we are starting to globalize the processes of regulatory toxicology. One thing I'll tell you, having traveled uh, uh, a little bit in terms of international travel, um, is that uh, our regulatory system, uh, EPA or FDA, is typically held up by the rest of the world in very, very high regard for the efficiency uh, for the types of data. When our FDA or EPA rule on a chemical, I would say there is a tremendous number of countries out there that take that as as the truth, And and quite often they will adopt the recommendation of the U.S. EPA and FDA. Uh, is that uh, uh, a uniform acceptance? No. Uh, in fact, many industrialized countries have their own sets of standards. But typically, uh, there is uh, harmonization—another term for you—of the rules and regulations about uh, chemical use in the environment and in the human food chain. Uh, there is uh, typically uh, a. Uh, need for for some sort of harmonization just because of global trade and because of transboundary uh, relationships between countries. These individuals will be involved in risk assessment. We talked about the risk assessment triad, and you remember all of the uh, the risk analysis sectors of how uh, a process of risk analysis is performed from our introductory lecture. Uh, Developmental toxicologists will take a look at new chemicals and their uses. Uh, What we do in developmental toxicology is make sure that uh, there aren't any key critical uh, next generation or inheritable uh, end effect responses of toxicosis. Uh, There have been some classic failures in this over the past 100 years. Uh, DES diethylstilbestrol, given to pregnant women uh, uh, to ease nausea uh, but ended up causing birth defects in the conceptus is probably the most classic example of developmental toxicosis. uh, And our regulatory system, if you will, not having the, uh, at that point in time, sufficient oversight and review prior to a chemical being used in pharmaceutical application. We can also classify toxicants uh, in, in many ways. We can do them uh, by the target organ. So we'll refer to some chemicals as hepatotoxins because they have a direct uh, impact on your liver. We'll, in fact, have a whole lecture on target organ toxicity. So when we talk about neurotoxicity, we'll talk about the fundamental chemical reactions, uh, for example, of how cholinesterase inhibitors actually bind irreversibly, uh, somewhat irreversibly, uh, to, to the enzyme, uh, the neurotransmitter uh, enzyme uh, cholinesterase. We can classify toxicants in terms of their intended uses, so you'll hear us refer to pesticides, uh, solvents, for example, or biocides. We'll refer to toxicants uh, sometimes as natural or synthetic. Uh, we try not to bias uh, that. It's just a label in terms of its source uh, in our environment, in our food chain. Uh, What I would like students in this course to do is walk away with an understanding that it's the chemical. It's not necessarily the manufacturer, whether it be nature or uh, humans, um, but the chemical that deserves the respect uh, in terms of potential for toxicosis. Uh, As I'm often said, nature is is, uh, uh, very, very good at poisoning us, uh, and in many cases, much, much better than anything we could devise or uh, invent in terms of our industrial chemistry. We can classify toxicants uh, by their special effects. So uh, you've probably all heard about uh, carcinogenic chemicals, uh, mutagenic chemicals. We can have endocrine disruptors. uh, We can have estrogenic disruptors. And so there's many different ways that we can describe uh, that, and typically by that's uh, chemicals, uh, toxic end effect. One of the reasons, by the way, I put an alligator here, many of you, this point kind of wonder why we have an alligator in terms of uh, a a classification of toxicants. One of the major studies uh, involved in uh, endocrine disruption was actually done on uh, newborn alligators in Lake Apopka, Florida. Uh, Lake Apopka was a a very polluted uh, lake uh, in Florida and uh, some of the uh, 1980s uh, work that looked at uh, the relationship of chemicals in a confined environment like Lake Kapopka uh, uh, and the relationship to, in this case, feminization of the male offspring of alligators in this particular ecosystem. We can also classify toxicants uh, in terms of their physical states. So uh, we can talk about uh, gas-phase toxicants uh, like uh, the uh, toxicants in Bhopal, India. Uh, Solids in terms of uh, uh, like this chemical here, uh, this is acme arsenic of lead. It was an actively used insecticide in fruit orchards uh, actually here in the Northwest. Uh, uh, It was a potent uh, chemical. In fact, uh, the legacy of... uh, uh, lead arsenate uh, is significant in the level of soil contamination, residual soil contamination of many orchard lands uh, and other agricultural lands uh, where this was used. Uh, arsenic uh, is fairly mobile. It has the impact of potentially going down a groundwater, um, but it also can be uh, bioalkylated by bacteria and fungi uh, and essentially mobilized away from uh, this particular impact environment. However, lead is is uh, uh, somewhat uh, immobile, uh, and typically the residual lead concentrations in these soils make it difficult for uh, some farmers to uh, actually. Uh, f- usually, it's it's a real estate uh, transaction. If you want to convert a farm field into, for instance, a residential area, uh, you have fairly highly contaminated soils, and this issue has developed. Uh, in many uh, instances in the Northwest because of the historical use of this compound. We can talk about a uh, chemical in terms of its toxicity. So uh, for example, on the list uh, towards the end of today's lecture, uh, we'll talk about, uh, for example, slightly or low toxic uh, chemicals, extremely toxic chemicals. uh, And this has to do with key critical indicators of its toxicity, uh, its behavior in terms of the quantitative relationship of dose and response. We can talk about uh, chemicals in terms of classifying them uh, in term, uh, from their chemical composition. So we will hear the term heavy metal, for example. Uh, why quite often, And uh, coming from a chemistry background, I take a look at the periodic table and I worry most in terms of toxicosis about that middle uh, transition element. These are where our heavy metals are. Uh, we can talk about, for example, organophosphate uh, insecticides, and so you'll hear that. Uh, compositional description of a toxicant. We can also talk about toxicants from their mechanism of action. Uh, anticholinergic, for example, uh, that uh, inter- interact uh, with the uh, neurotransmitter receptors uh, in terms of uh, neurotoxic chemicals. Uh, it can be a, a cholinesterase inhibitor uh, where he actually works it on a different side of uh Uh, the neurotransmission on the enzyme that essentially uh, quiets the response after the initial uh, depolarization of the neuron. Uh, We can talk about chemicals being uncouplers, uncoupling key critical uh, enzymatic pathways like the Krebs cycle. We'll show some examples in this course of of chemicals that uh, turn off uh, key critical biochemical cycles uh, with uh, very toxic uh, end-effects. Now, if we classify the types of toxic responses, we can talk about them. Uh, You've probably heard of, uh, uh, and I've introduced these terms a little bit in this course already, at local or systemic effects. Um, If I uh, rub up against a poison ivy bush, I get a localized uh, dermatitis, uh, blistering on my arm. Some of us will have an immune cascading response and start showing blistering or systemic effects. Uh, from this particular toxic action uh, at different parts of our body. Uh, A snake bite is an example of a systemic. uh, There will be local inflammation, local necrosis at the area of the bite, but the protein venom will actually circulate through and start a systemic response throughout the organism. So um, local is going to be at the uh, site of contact, and that can be the gastrointestinal tract in terms of localized intoxication. If we breathe a very toxic uh, chemical, uh, for example, the chemical in in Bhopal actually mixes with the water. Uh, It's a plasticizer which used uh, uh, by Union Carbide. Uh, It actually had a devastating response because it was very reactive with water. As you breathe in, your lung tissues are are very moist. Uh, There was chemical reaction at the surface uh, of your lung tissue and respiratory failure. With systemic responses, uh, those effects can be distant uh, from the exposure site. Uh, For example, I might uh, eat something uh, that's a gastrointestinal tract, but that uh, something that I I might have eaten that has a toxic response, for instance, uh, target organ toxicity, uh, for instance, a kidney toxin, uh, a nephrotoxin. Uh, These can be uh, typically classified as CNS or central nervous system toxins, nephrotoxins, respiratory toxins. We can find that uh, it's not uh, that uncommon to have both localized and systemic effects uh, in in, uh, toxic responses. Some of the responses can be classified as immediate, and that can be minutes to hours after a single exposure, and some of them can be uh, delayed, and these can be days to years after exposure. We all kind of understand at this point that uh, carcinogenesis is typically a delayed response uh, to an acute or chronic exposure to a carcinogen. Uh, Cancer is a disease of decades. Uh, You don't get skin cancer from going out and getting one sunburn uh, and then see a... uh, uh, cancer spot, uh, uh, basal cell, or melanoma show up the next day. Uh, we might uh, take uh, a decade or more for that development to occur. Both uh, uh, local and systemic and immediate delayed can can occur in any particular time. So sometimes uh, we just use these terms, uh, especially when they are, uh, for uh, example, uh, specific to a particular toxin or toxicant. We can also look at uh, toxic responses and classify them as uh, reversible or irreversible. Uh, The uh, reversibility of a toxic response is determined by the types of tissue involved. uh, Hepatotoxins, for example, your liver is uh, largely a regenerable uh, organ in terms of the uh, uh, structures and function of it. It is used to a lot of damage. It's one of the primary organs for detoxification. So in a certain sense, this first guard uh, gets a lot of uh, assault, uh, insult, toxic insult, if you will. And uh, in terms of our evolutionary strategy, um, because it is our first line of defense, it does have a significant amount of regeneration capacity. Uh, the length of exposure and the magnitude of the toxic insult is a part of whether or not a, uh, uh, an intoxication will be uh, reversible. Um, reversible uh, toxicoses, again, are uh, regenerating type tissues, uh, intestinal mucosa. If you've ever um, uh, absorbed a particularly toxic uh, material or, for instance, uh, in bacterial toxigenesis, Uh, had a bacterial infection, Uh, those bacterial toxins uh, will have a uh, dramatic uh, insult in terms of the lining of your stomach and gastrointestinal tract. And uh, in fact, uh, because of, again, evolutionary strategy of uh, diet and the relative uh, uncontrolled aspect of historical diets. Uh, these tissues need to be rapidly regenerating. Once the toxic insult has passed, uh, these tissues need to be able to self-heal. Uh, blood cells are another one. The average lifespan of a blood cell is something on the red blood cell is something on the order of uh, 90 to 120 days. So there's this programmed uh, replacement of a cellular tissue. Irreversible. Uh, Quite often, uh, central nervous system damage uh, is uh, irreversible. Uh, Even with uh, antidotes, and there are antidotes for some neurotoxins, there is the ability to have, uh, for example, this delayed neuropathy. Carcinogenesis uh, is irreversible, uncontrolled cell growth. We'll do an entire lecture on these types of uh, toxic end effects, mutagenesis and teratogenesis as well. Uh, The photo up here is uh, from an embryo grebe. Uh, this particular uh, toxic insult was a high level of selenium. Selenium uh, is in the same group six as sulfur and can, in high concentration, displace uh, selenium in fundamental biochemicals, uh, disulfide bonds, disulfide bridges, and protein folding uh, can get interrupted by selenium substituting for those sulfurs. Selenium can also substitute into amino acids. For example, cysteine, which is sulfur-bearing amino acid, can be substituted by selenocysteine. What happens is, uh, typically, in, this is a reproductive toxin because the next generation will have too much selenium. Uh, and quite often, this is a soft tissue uh, toxicosis. In this case, you see a deformed beak uh, associated with uh, 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 disulfide bond interruption in beak formation. We can also talk about uh, toxins and toxicants uh, in terms of their bioavailability. Uh, For example, um, if I am exposed to lead, uh, a lead assay, for example, in soil or water will be a total lead. But we know that lead can exist as many species. It can be a lead salt. It can be lead metal. Um, Is the car battery in our car a toxic uh, source? Well, it could be if we decided to try to eat lead metal or we rub that lead in our hands or breathe the lead dust maybe in manufacturing. Um, Lead oxides that exist in soils um, have a different bioavailability and because it's not as available, for example, uh, the overall dose of lead as just total lead will be different from the bioavailable dose of lead. And So some of the lead will actually pass through, for example, our gastrointestinal tract. So bioavailability is a way to consider the uh, availability of particular toxins to the organism via typical routes of exposure. In organic uh, uh, chemicals, uh, for example, uh, uh, solvents or uh, pesticides, uh, we can look at something called the octanol water partition coefficient. Partition coefficients, uh, and we'll talk about uh, several of them towards the end of the the course as we start getting into chemodynamics and fate and transport uh, ideas in terms of chemistry and environmental chemistry of toxicants. Uh, Partition coefficients allow us to empirically look at uh, where a chemical will be. Uh, For example, we've talked about the liposphere. Why have we talked about the liposphere? Because some nonpolar chemicals like DDT are very fat soluble. So if you, for example, take a look at a pond and there are fish in that pond, think of the fish as being sticks of butter. Like, likes, like. So nonpolar chemicals like DDT, like PCBs, like dioxins, are gonna like that stick of butter called a fish and not like the water, uh, which is a non-polar media. And so the octanol water partition coefficient, KOW, is an interesting way just to kind of introduce this partitioning of chemicals. Where is it? In fact, uh, many people in environmental chemistry partition the environment. They draw boxes. Uh, in a certain sense, we as an organism are another box on that model. And this allows us to break down into uh, relationship, interface relationships, for instance, between air and water. What about a volatile chemical uh, that's in the water? will be released to air at what rate? So KOW allows us to uh, give us some sort of uh, empirical solubility analysis uh, to look at, uh, among other things, transmembrane movement. Now, what are we, our largest organ is skin, right? And uh, uh, our skin is nothing more than a membrane. That membrane is, in part, water. Uh, We all try and keep our skin moist, but there is also lipid there. And so as this 80%, 20% uh, ratio uh, of water to other things uh, in our membranes, uh, and we need to go back to introductory biology and remember lipid membranes and the fatty acids involved in cells and uh, cell walls. But as it turns out that uh, we can take a look at these empirical terms like K-O-W, log K-O-W as well. And uh, this is a very simple analysis. This would be if we wanted to study a chemical. We take a a test tube and we fill it half with water and half with uh, uh, O is octanol. Octanol is a very heavy, uh, almost lipid-like solvent. And very simply, uh, we put a chemical in there. We shake it up and see if the chemical likes the very uh, nonpolar, the octanol phase, or the polar water phase. And usually, in in many chemicals, there's a little bit in each of the layers. The amount that you'll find in the octanol or the water partition in a KOW uh, experiment uh, is a function of the chemical itself. Uh, Is it ionized? Uh, If it is, it's probably going to be in the water phase. Is it nonpolar? It's probably going to be in the octanol phase. Um, It doesn't mean there won't be any in the water phase, for example, but it will be preferentially. And so this will tell us where it might be in terms of bioavailability in an organism. Now, for example, when we look at chemicals like DDT and we analyze the lipid of an individual, we find the predominant mass of DDT is sequestered in the body fat of the individual. So if we calculate these log KOWs, and these are simple laboratory benchtop experiments, a little bit of octanol, a little bit of water, shake it up and find out which phase it's in. Uh, This gives us an idea of where we might find chemicals in the environment and within organisms, but also its potential for transmembrane movement. Because remember that uh, uh, the epithelial cells on our skin, the epithelial cells in our uh, respiratory tract, or the epithelial cells in our gastrointestinal tract are all uh, have a lipid bilayer. okay? And so what is a, an empirical way to kind of look at what is the good property of KOW in terms of transmembrane movement? We find that that's typically in the area of a log KOW of 2 to 3. Um, that's uh, 10 to the second, to 10 to the third. Uh, and that means that it's more in the octanol phase than in the water phase. And so things that are a little bit more lipid-soluble uh, by 100-fold or so are good in terms of transmembrane movement. Now, there are other factors in your readings in your book. We'll talk about some of those other factors, the size, the conformation, the charge uh, of the uh, chemical that assists membrane movement. Uh, but as we find uh, this particular uh, uh, indicator of bioavailability, as we define it and study it, we can use it again as an empirical way to kind of understand these chemicals. The formula at the bottom gives you how to calculate the concentration of a chemical uh, that's in the octanol phase divided by the concentration that's in the water to give you uh, a, a KOW. An example of this is a chemical, NN diethyl 3 methylbenzamid Uh It's also called diethyl uh, diethyltouamide or DEET. Uh, it's something that, for example, uh, many students will have used uh, at one point in their life. Uh, Deet came to us uh, uh, in the early part of the 1900s, about 1930, I believe, it started coming into use as uh, an insect repellent. As um, far as my readings, uh, they still really don't know how it works. Uh, as it is, it does turn out, uh, diethyl or Deet, actually has uh, a, a very good um, KOW in terms of transmembrane movement. The log KOW is 2.18. Uh, for example, uh, that, that means that uh, when you rub this on there, not only will you get uh, a, um, an impact in terms of uh, keeping the bugs away, but there is transmembrane movement. So there will be systemic uh, circulation absorption of this particular chemical. Now, it has low toxicity, however, um, Toxicity uh, is a function of dose, and in the clinical records, there are examples of misuse of this particular product. Uh, for example, um, uh, parents that, uh, have a, uh, that treat their young children, spray them down, for example, every night in some uh, environments, uh, there have been clinical di- uh, um, uh, reports of uh, tonic-clonic seizures, Uh, It does cross the blood-brain barrier. We'll talk about that in terms of some of the uh, aspects of how things cross these critical barriers. Uh, But DEEK does have potential uh, impact. Uh, uh, In the late 80s, um, there was a commercial product, uh, Pet uh, Flea and Tick Spray, uh, by a major brand name, uh, that was... uh, Uh, called into question because uh, animals treated with this, and again here's a pet owner that is perhaps not following the label, treating uh, repeatedly at high dose uh, and these animals were going into seizures and in some cases dying. Uh, There's also the aspect of these chemicals that have this transdermal uh, uh, absorption, they have the ability to co-solvate other chemicals and draw them in with them. And this concept has been used in transdermal drug delivery. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, DEED is one chemical, uh, dimethyl sulfoxide is another chemical. You mix the pharmaceutical in or some other chemical that you want to treat the individual with into the solvent. The solvent carries it across that membrane, you get transdermal drug delivery. Anyone that's ever experienced a nicotine uh, patches knows about uh, transdermal drug delivery. And so this is again just a, an example of uh, a pesticide that's in common use that we put on ourselves. Uh, uh, and I, I like to make sure people kind of know and understand that when we use chemicals, uh, we use them for desired effects and we hope to minimize uh, the undesirable effects. And quite often the undesirable effects are minimized by following the labels. But even still, you can be a part of that hypersensitive population has dramatic toxicosis, uh, whereas the rest of the population will have minimal uh, negative impacts. Now, if we take a look at toxicology, we can break it up into three phases, the exposure phase, the toxicokinetic phase, and the toxicodynamic phase. And each one of these uh, we'll talk about, and in following lectures, ensuing lectures, we'll Be able to kind of uh, look at different uh, aspects of toxicosis and uh, how those uh, aspects actually are able to be studied and kind of analyzed, uh, sometimes uh, in a quantitative way. Uh, The picture here is actually a local picture of a nearby cemetery. Um, I thought it was interesting that here in uh, an area where uh, essentially death and uh, the celebration of life, if you will, in terms of gravestones. is all around that uh, there was a volunteer uh, growth of poison hemlock uh, in a somewhat macabre uh, example of a a local toxic plant. In terms of the exposure phase, uh, it's dominated by uh, bioavailability, and that's the fraction of the dose that might be available for absorption. Uh, So in terms of uh, uh, respiratory toxicosis, how much is absorbed uh, with each breath? Uh, in terms of GIT, how much is it absorbed through the intestinal lining? Some of that can be facilitated absorption if, for instance, the toxicant uh, like lead uh, and goes and, and uh, 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 hijacks, if you will, the calcium absorption pathways. Uh, some of the main factors in the exposure phase are the time and frequency of exposure. Uh, for example, we talked about acute and subchronic and the round of administration. Uh, of the toxin. In animals that can be oral, uh, lung, skin injection for instance. Uh, Sometimes in toxicological studies uh, 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 toxicologists will do something for example called interperitoneal. Um, They'll actually inject the toxicant into the abdominal cavity of an animal and the idea is to study it without any possible uh, transformation for example in terms of oral uh, ingestion of a particular chemical. Um, it's one way to look at the relationship of a chemical to potential and uh, effect toxicosis. Plants, and we will deal uh, a little bit in terms of plants, but we won't really uh, do that in terms of comparative toxicology in this course, but respect that uh, in terms of how uh, uh, toxicants are uh, initially absorbed into these uh, uh, organisms, it's through the roots and the leaves, uh, stomatal pores, um, typically, uh, through some of the surface cells. The exposure phase is uh, dominated by the dose, uh, so how much is a quantitative aspect, and again, we'll try to define that significantly in a full lecture on dose-response uh, relationships. The physical and chemical form of the toxicant, things like particle size, uh, solubilization, uh, is it particularly soluble or not? Uh, There can be host-related factors in terms of the health of the host and whether or not uh, the ability of that host to fight off uh, that particular uh, uh, um, uh, toxic insult. Uh, For example, if uh, you're an individual that has uh, diminished immune function because of uh, uh, malnutrition, uh, that is typically going to set you up for a more significant toxic response to an insult uh, than somebody that's in a uh, well-nourished, uh, healthier environment. For example, in carcinogenesis, and it's been estimated that we get about a hundred thousand hits of uh, mutagenesis per day, normally, naturally, in our bodies. These are our cell differentiation activities on a, on a, a cellular basis. Our immune system is pretty good at detecting uh, uh, bad path uh, cells and formations. Uh, and uh, if our immune system is compromised in some way from disease or malnutrition, uh, we have the inability to kind of self-manage these normally uh, occurring uh, malformations, these uh, uncontrolled differentiating cells. Uh, this picture, you may have read about this in the past few years. Uh, this was Ukrainian present. President uh, Viktor Yushchenko, a very classic uh, and unfortunate uh, case study in poisoning. Uh, there's uh, obviously some political intrigue in terms of his political opponents and how exactly this dioxin poisoning happened. Uh, what he experienced was classic chloracne. Uh, it's dioxin or hydrocarbon, chlor- chlorinated hydrocarbon uh, toxicosis in the initial stages. Uh, these pustules uh, appear on your face and sometimes body, depending upon... Uh, the degree of intoxication of uh, this particular level of chloracne suggests that this individual uh, had a very very uh, high uh, dose, uh, probably wasn't acute but it was high on a relative basis over a short period of time uh, not enough to cause uh, some of the neurotoxic impacts of chlorinated hydrocarbons but enough to uh, c- cause chloracne, uh, dioxins, and you'll see the um, from a dose response point of view, uh, are uh, extraordinarily toxic chemicals. Uh, it's very lipophilic uh, in terms of uh, speculating where the dose came from, perhaps an alcoholic beverage in terms of its ability to be diluted, or in his food, uh, probably not in his water. Uh, very unfortunate circumstance, uh, especially considered the potential for carcinogenesis from this particular chemical. Uh, the next phase that we'll talk about is the absorption phase of toxicosis. Uh, we can use uh, comparative uh, toxicology to, to look at this uh, uh, in terms of absorption on a cellular basis or absorption on an organism basis. Um, these uh, On an organism basis, we're talking about macroabsorption, for instance, uh, through lung tissue. On a cellular basis, we're talking about toxicants that cross the cell membrane either uh, just going uh, destroying the membrane or passing through the pores or in facilitated uh, transport. Uh, We have to know and understand a little bit about membrane morphology and we'll uh, review this a little bit uh, in our lectures. The lipoprotein bilayer, uh, this critical wall uh, around cells that uh, separates the outside world from the inside world and all the cellular mechanics uh, that we have in biology. Uh, destroying that membrane releases those uh, inner chemicals, uh, sometimes enzymes that are extremely bioactive, lysozymes, uh, cellular damage, uh, uh, oxidative stress. And we'll talk a little bit about antioxidants and why Mom tells you to eat your fruits and vegetables uh, in terms of the the uh, in our target organ toxicology. But uh, this is an important uh, potential toxic endpoint. There are some physiochemical processes that uh, will govern transmembrane movement. Uh, We talked about the lipid water solubility and uh, log K-O-W. There can be, for example, ionization of PKA, uh, functional groups, uh, the the essentially chemical morphology, including molecular size and conformation, how it will pass uh, through uh, these membranes. Uh, There can be, for example, and this is a, a classic in respiratory toxicosis, uh, particulate migration. And these are particles. Uh, they're, they're microscopic in terms of their overall size because of the number of microns. But they can actually pass in through tissues and migrate uh, from one place to another, essentially going into the interstitial spaces between cells. Uh, I... Uh, had a roommate uh, in, in uh, graduate school, uh, a Nicaraguan individual that uh, had the unfortunate experience of grabbing his coat out of the back of a jeep after the Managuan earthquake in the 1970s, uh, not realizing there was a shotgun in, wrapped up in his coat, which uh, fell on the ground and discharged. Uh, it hit him in a very tender place, uh, the place where we all sit down, and uh, he got uh, a lot of buckshot. You know. Uh, he did survive the incident, uh, but uh, uh, for years and, and perhaps even decades later, uh, he would uh, notice buckshot that would migrate through very odd places in his body, even on his chest, where he'd see a dark spot. And uh, uh, over a period of time, that uh, buckshot had migrated throughout his whole body in terms of just translocation. And so we're not as solid individuals as you might think. Uh, we do have lots of pores, cavities, and the ability or particulates to migrate as well. In terms of what governs transmembrane uh, movement, uh, simple diffusion uh, governed by concentration gradients, a fixed law that you learned in freshman chemistry. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in absorption uh, lectures. Uh, we can have filtration uh, materials that actually go through aqueous pores, uh, They get transported in the same way we uh, transport various fluids in our body. They can also be carrier mediated, uh, carried by other chemicals, uh, either uh, natural uh, or exogenous or endogenous. Sometimes these can be uh, facilitated as well in terms of different enzymes or proteins that are set up to facilitate absorption, for example, of nutrients uh, they bond nutrients and allow it to cross membranes in a facilitated way uh, sometimes toxicants can play the role of that uh, particular uh, mineral or chemical and get facilitated absorption essentially hijacking that mechanism in terms of the sites of absorption we have uh, in animals the gastrointestinal tract uh, dermal uh, absorption lung absorption in plants the stomatal pores the cuticle the roots An insect, we find the pore canals, uh, uh, various oral, if they ingest uh, a particular chemical uh, that might, for instance, be on a food product, uh, a leaf that they're eating uh, might contain an insecticide. Fish uh, have absorption through their gill tissues, uh, gastrointestinal tract, and through dermal absorption, uh, remembering that fish essentially swim in their environment. They have 100% dermal contact with their environment in the same way we have. 100% dermal contact with our air. In terms of the distribution phase of toxicology, there's four fates, and this has something to do with the site of toxic action. Uh, We then go to storage. Uh, then metabolism, and then excretion. Um, These uh, are, in essence, the titles of four of the lectures here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, where we'll go through, step by step, uh, how these different fates uh, sequentially happen in in toxicosis. How this occurs in terms of transport, uh, in terms of the distribution phase in uh, animals, uh, it gets transported throughout our bodies in blood, which is a very fast-flowing fluid, or via the lymph system, which is uh, uh, significantly slower on a uh, respective basis. In plants, it's the xylem and phloem. There are some barriers of toxicological significance. We'll talk about these Uh, again. I'll introduce what you probably or may have heard of the blood-brain barrier. Uh, In terms of an evolutionary strategy for survival, uh, we are only as good uh, as uh, uh, our brains are. And so we have many protective mechanisms in our physiology when we faint due to heat exhaustion it's to preserve our brain uh, when we uh, uh, have a blood brain barrier that uh, keeps out certain types of chemicals uh, that's because uh, probably in terms of our evolution uh, those there was a selection for those individuals uh, that had increased amounts of uh, cells and these cells are called astrocytes we'll talk about them that have higher fat content uh, and therefore uh, modulate the types of solubility, uh, the types of chemicals that pass through that particular barrier. Uh, isn't it amazing that uh, in terms of uh, 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 offspring and reproduction that uh, women have a placental barrier? Uh, in fact, uh, can be intoxicated, yet uh, that placental barrier will protect the fetus. Again, an evolutionary strategy for survival and there is also a blood-milk barrier, um, and these all uh, occur with the same sorts of relative lipid level in certain types of cells, certain types of membranes uh, that form these particular barriers. One of the things I want to introduce to you in this is a generalized respect for the variety of toxins. uh, As we talk about the interface of chemistry and biology, biology is often very easy to visualize chemistry is a little bit more difficult uh, when we talk about toxins and toxicosis i want you to start understanding uh, the incredible variety of chemicals that can have toxic effects. Uh, I put a sea snake neurotoxin up here which is a protein uh, neurotoxin to give you an idea of the complexity of some of these chemicals. And One of the challenges I have you do in this particular exercise, uh, this particular lecture module online, is to analyze uh, uh, some structures, some protein structures, uh, to essentially get inside uh, of a 3D representation online. Uh, at the protein data bank and get an idea of the receptors that exist uh, and on particular types of biomolecules for intoxication. Some of the factors affecting distribution include uh, the affinity of particular tissues for the xenobiotic, Uh, So, For example, uh, uh, there will be receptors, there will be chemical structures, uh, there will be uh, different proteins uh, or enzymes that have an impact with a type of toxin. Uh, This will yield, uh, in some cases, target organ toxicity. The blood flow to the organ, uh, the liver gets first pass uh, enterohepatic recirculation. Uh, from the portal vein, so as we uh, eat a toxicant, uh, it gets absorbed. Uh, There is a tremendous amount, I think it's 60%, if I recall correctly, of your blood flow uh, from your intestines actually goes directly to uh, your liver. This first pass impact uh, uh, with high flow and high impact in terms of the original uh, uh, site of potential uh, interaction. Uh, sets the liver up for either hepatotoxicity if it can't manage it or for detoxification if in fact it can manage it quite well. Uh, Protein binding uh, will be uh, one of the factors affecting distribution. Uh, We set ourselves up for elimination and as you'll see uh, in our biotransformation lectures and some comments today that We are very talented in terms of our ability to detoxify many of the chemicals uh, that we are exposed to, either from natural sources or from synthetic sources. The route of administration, the rate of metabolism, uh, if it's something that has a slow rate of metabolism, that chemical uh, is around a lot longer to do some damage if, in fact, it has high level of bioactivity. There is a potential for redistribution uh, when we do target organ toxicity. You can look up in the resources. I've put a cartoon together in flash animation of enterohepatic recirculation. And this is uh, a a quirk, for instance, of of our uh, biology where uh, our liver uh, will actually process uh, materials absorbed. through the gastrointestinal tract and transported the liver by the portal vein, uh, getting discharged uh, through the bile ducts and the gallbladder back into the gastrointestinal tract after it's processed. Uh, What that can do is set up because it's an upstream uh, release, this allows for a very efficient absorption and utilization of nutrients. But because toxicants also follow this pathway there can be a re-exposure in this recirculation, that the processed toxicants, and sometimes that's a minor modification to the original chemical, can actually uh, come back to visit you and cycle around and hang out for a while in terms of enteropatic recirculation. We have the metabolism phase, and we'll do an entire lecture on this. Uh, We'll refer to this as uh, your body trying to make uh, grease into salt. Uh, One of the things that we want to do is take uh, chemicals that uh, are perhaps uh, have limited solubility and make them more soluble. Why do we want to make them more soluble? Uh, So we can eliminate them via the urinary tract, primarily. And so bioconversion and uh, biotransformation is an important part of this process. We break it up into two phases. These are typically sequential phases, but they can happen uh, independently and very different chemicals can undergo very different uh, metabolic processes in terms of the outcome. Uh, Typically what we find is that uh, the metabolism of a chemical, the TTR, total toxic residue, of a chemical will actually be found uh, in in maybe one metabolite primarily, maybe two, maybe five or six, different chemical structures, different modifications. This is your body converting chemicals from one form to another, in the hopes, at least from a survival strategy point of view, that this transformation detoxifies that particular chemical, makes it less toxic. As it turns out, sometimes, uh, because this is uh, uh, just operating in terms of thermodynamics and uh, drivers of chemistry in terms of available enzymes and cofactors, sometimes your body actually takes something that has uh, relatively low direct toxicity and toxifies it. In other words, it enhances or increases the toxicity of that chemical via this metabolic cycle. Uh, Some of the uh, factors affecting this are environmental and genetic. Um, Phase one, as you'll find out, is uh, typically just associated with a functional group change on a molecule to make it more polar. Phase 2, uh, this grease-to-salt conversion, is something that adds uh, a, a side uh, group to it, typically, for example, uh, a sugar or a sulfate group. Uh, and we'll go through these in uh, the chemistry of each of these uh, in fair uh, uh, treatment of uh, a uh, whole lecture. If we go back to uh, dioxin, and we'll just reference this a couple of times in this particular lecture, uh, if you look at this uh, uh, chemical formula here, what you can see is that this is a very nonpolar chemical. This is a very lipophilic chemical. You've got four chlorines. This is TCDD, tetrachlorodibenzo uh, We're going to do a whole lecture on uh, dioxins and dioxin-like compounds in this course. But this is a very lipid-soluble, nonpolar chemical. And so, what do you think body might want to do to this greasy molecule? It's going to try to increase the uh, uh, polarity of it. How would you increase in terms of, if you go back to basic freshman chemistry, organic chemistry, how do you increase the polarity? Well, you start adding hydroxyl groups, you start adding sugar groups, you start modifying this particular chemical, uh, increase its polarity uh, via these biotransformation reactions, and that is, in essence, uh, phase one, phase two biotransformation. And we'll see some examples in that lecture. And we'll talk about some of the metabolic pathways uh, of dioxin in the dioxin lecture. There are some factors that influence toxicity. Uh, we have all seen the movies where uh, someone gets poisoned uh, by uh, the uh, one of the uh, actors in the movies. And perhaps the... You've got 24 hours to live unless you tell me the big uh, secret, uh, and then I'll give you the antidote. Uh, what is the antidote? When you think about, you've got a poison, uh, uh, you have an intoxicated individual, and you've got an antidote, this magic chemical that is going to reverse uh, or limit the impacts of toxicosis. Well, in terms of the interactions of chemicals, uh, there's four major categories, and these are for concomitant exposures. So this is exposure that happens in a very similar simultaneous uh, time frame. There is additive toxicity. For example, if we take two organic phosphate uh, chemicals, both have the toxic endpoints of cholinesterase inhibition. In a certain sense, even though we're having two doses of two different chemicals, it's like almost like one dose of one class of chemicals, which are cholinesterase-inhibiting OPs. If we look at that as a simple sort of equation, that would be that uh, the toxicity of one chemical might be uh, equivalent to 2. The toxicity of the other chemical might be 2. And the overall toxicity would be additive equaling 4. We can have synergistic toxicity. And this is uh, where it's more than additive. The sum of the two is more uh, than each individual. And that can be represented by 2 plus 2 equals 10, a significant enhancement of toxicity. An example of that would be carbon tetrachloride, CCL4, combined with ethanol, leading to hepatotoxicity. Without ethanol, it's still toxic, but it's not as toxic as the combination. There is also potentiation, uh, and that's uh, something that is toxic when you co-co-administered with something that is uh, can be regarded as non-toxic or low-toxic. 2 plus 0 is equal to 6. An example of that, uh, isopropanol, uh, rubbing alcohol. Uh, We put it on our bodies. It's got relatively low toxicity, but uh, combined with uh, carbon tetrachloride, uh, uh, you can have substantial uh, toxicity. Uh, We talk about carcinogenesis. We'll talk about tumor promoters, uh, classes of uh, uh, agents uh, uh, that uh, promote cancer but in and of themselves are not necessarily carcinogenic. We can also have antagonism and this is our antidotes and this is uh, a chemical uh, that might even have toxicity in and of itself but when combined with another chemical, it's a balancing act. It shuts off uh, the uh, uh, toxicity uh, or counters the toxicity with the essentially opposite sort of toxicity. Uh, These are quite often used in therapeutic medicine. Uh, You can represent this as 2 plus 2 equals 0. Uh, BAL is British Anti-Lewisite. Uh, this was uh, an antidote that was carried uh, in World War I by soldiers uh, and the uh, medics on the field for uh, various heavy metal chemical warfare agents that were used in, in World War I. Uh, what this does, it's uh, a binding agent uh, that would bind some of these arsenic-type gases that were used. Uh, This is your classic sort of uh, antidote uh, chemical that is used, and we'll talk about several antidotes for various types of uh, intoxication. Uh, Things, for example, like atropine. Uh, Quite often we find is uh, that these uh, antidotes, uh, uh, when given, uh, we can call them antidotes when they're used in a clinical setting, but they can also be, in and of themselves, uh, toxicants. Uh, They still may have some toxicity, Uh, associated with their individual use. Uh, The final step in our phases of toxicology is excretion. We want to get rid of the stuff. Uh, So we have all of these exogenous substances in our normal daily diet, naturally occurring chemicals, these plant alkaloids that exist in potatoes, tomatoes, uh, many of our fruits and vegetables, a full range of of chemicals that Uh, may do us harm in high concentrations Uh, in low concentrations uh, they may just uh, give us a headache uh, an upset stomach or have no effect whatsoever but we do have the biochemical machinery to enhance their elimination we want to be able to urinate them to pee them out Uh, we do uh, find that renal excretion is the primary uh, mechanism Uh, uh, if uh, you don't agree with me in terms of the ability of uh, your urine stream to detoxify and eliminate. Uh, I invite you all to have asparagus for dinner tonight and smell your urine tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll talk about how that uh, the chemical compounds in there, the, these uh, sulfur compounds from uh, asparagus, actually end up in your urine. Uh, We can have non-renal excretion as well. Uh, We can have biliary excretion, so we can have direct uh, uh, interaction of uh, the bile processes and the bile acids to emulsify uh, some of these lipophilic uh, products and uh, put them back into your GI tract for uh, fecal uh, elimination. For volatiles, uh, think about this. Your lungs are a very high surface area uh, gas transport uh, membrane. Uh, You may not realize this, but your lungs have the surface area of about half of a volleyball court. It's a huge, huge, huge membrane in terms of the surface area. Tremendous potential for gas uh, uh, interchange. If we have a substance in our blood, uh, in our pulmonary system that is volatile, there will be exchange. Uh, There are certain chemicals, for example, selenium. If you are exposed to uh, high selenium in your diet, uh, and many of us will take selenium in our vitamin pills because it is a required trace element, Uh, high selenium uh, will uh, actually give us a little bit of garlic breath uh, because of the volatile compounds, selenium compounds that are produced in our metabolism. Um, There can be, as well, in terms of excretion, uh, comparative aspects uh, to how animals and plants uh, excrete uh, and detoxify. Uh, And, in fact, what we find in terms of things like herbicides Uh, there are selective herbicides. For example, if you're in agriculture um, there are classifications of broadleaf herbicides. What does that mean? That means that the broadleaf plants don't have the ability to detoxify this toxin whereas, uh, for example, grasses or some other plants might have the ability to detoxify this particular compound and eliminate it. One of the things we want to learn about is uh, toxicodynamics and these are the quantitative dose response relationships uh, And they have to do uh, with uh, the increase of dose yielding a uh, a critical uh, endpoint uh, that leads to toxicosis. We can kind of look at the chain of events uh, in terms of this is why, for example, uh, these toxic chemicals and the modifiers that you hear in the media um, have no necessary, do not necessarily have a relationship. Uh, in uh, dosage, uh, what we want to make sure is critical, that a toxic chemical will have a, a relationship to dosage in terms of a dose-response quantitative relationship. But this toxic chemical will have some sort of key interaction and will modify a, uh, some sort of critical uh, physiological or uh, cellular uh, target. Now, this is a key interaction. These key interactions can be subclinical in terms of potential toxicosis. We can have lab transformation, we can have repair, low dose, we can have uh, no observation of toxic endpoint. That key lesion is modified, and that can be tissue necrosis, it can be a change, it can be mutagenesis. whatever all of these endpoints that we'll review in this particular uh, uh, in a, in a um, uh, endpoints uh, lecture. Uh, With sufficient dose, we can have a progression or a buildup of these toxic responses uh, such that we finally get some sort of level of overt biological uh, response or effect. So we cross a threshold, and that's key for uh, systemic toxicology. We cross a threshold where we start observing uh, clinical toxicosis. And so under that threshold, we're not seeing toxicosis. Our system is managing it. Now, these thresholds for effects can be uh, a range of end effects. It can be, for example, lethality uh, in some organisms. It can be, uh, for example, um, if it's a pharmaceutical, there can be desirable end effects. For example, uh, uh, managing a, uh, uh, a disease, uh, we want to have a positive end effect, but under a certain dose, you won't have that effect. So you have to have a certain clinical uh, threshold that you have to cross in terms of the amount that's dosed. One of the key concepts to think about in terms of toxicosis is intrinsic activity um, and that can be a response and recognize that we are chemical beings. We are full of chemical responses, most of them favorable and that's why we're here. Uh, But we can have uh, intrinsic uh, interactions of toxicants. uh, agonists are substances with intrinsic activity. So, for example, an agonist oxygen, which we breathe and use in terms of our terminal electron acceptor in our respiration process, is an agonist. An antagonist is something that works against uh, that. So, carbon monoxide, uh, which will bind our hemoglobin uh, somewhat irreversibly relative to oxygen, is an antagonist. Okay. So agonist, antagonist, good terms to remember. Uh, In terms of a um, a toxicant and a receptor, um, you've got some binding or some response here of the two coming together. Typically, we find if we classify pharmaceuticals, those are are often regarded as uh, reversible. Toxicants, uh, typically uh, non-reversible. And what we find is that uh, we can sustain a certain amount of toxic damage uh, and rebuilding. And it all depends upon the type of exposure. Is it acute? Is it chronic? Um, is it something that is, for example, in the one-hit molecule, one hit theory of cancer, all you need is one molecule <laughs> of a carcinogen to modify this critical lesion uh, to start this uh, non-differentiated uh, cellular process called cancer. And these cells will replicate, and so that is one model of our understanding of cancer. I'll give you an example here since we started talking about oxygen of uh, agonist uh, antagonist uh, interaction. Uh, you may or may not have heard of uh, methemoglobin formation. This is sometimes referred to as blue baby syndrome. Uh, this comes to us uh, because uh, what happens is our hemoglobin, which is typically uh, ferrous, uh, ferrous iron, is uh, oxidized to ferric iron. Uh, you can see that in these blood stains here. This is normal uh, blood, uh, fairly bright red. You get this chocolate brown methemoglobinemia. Uh, what happens? Because there's reduced oxygen transport. That's why we get the blue baby in blue baby syndrome. Uh, we can have oxidation of ferrous iron by uh, nitrates, and typically this is the active ingredient is actually a reduced form, nitrites, uh, and this has to do with uh, juvenile uh, inability uh, to, to manage uh, nitrates uh, sufficiently. Uh, naphthalene chlorates uh, are also, and acetaminophen, uh, which is on your analgesic shelf, are also uh, chemicals that, in high concentration, can cause. Methemoglobin formation, uh, methemoglobin, and we have a certain amount of methemoglobin that forms normally and naturally. It's when we have too much that we go into respiratory distress. We just don't have the hemoglobin to transport oxygen in our. So, what we find also is uh, uh, an antagonist uh, impact of uh, competition uh, for oxygen binding. Carbon monoxide binds uh, uh, at uh, the ferrous iron, as does cyanide. Uh, cyanide typically in cellular respiration, whereas carbon monoxide is typically in uh, pulmonary respiration. Um, this is another form of uh, toxicosis uh, in terms of oxygen transport toxicants. In terms of methemoglobin formation, if we take a look at the heme group, uh, we can see ferrous iron here. Uh, we convert that from a ferrous heme to a ferric heme. We go from the red blood to the chocolate brown blood, uh, and, and the decreased ability uh, for oxygen transport uh, from hemoglobin with methemoglobin formation. Uh, there's several uh, types of oxidants, uh, as you saw on that list, that can cause uh, methemoglobin formation. It's a quick diagnostic procedure um, in terms of uh, clinical emergency medicine. Uh, in terms of looking for this particular endpoint of toxicosis. One of the things I asked you, I will ask you to do on the course website uh, in the lecture module here is to go into the protein data bank and I'll give you some links for fetal hemoglobin and for bar headed goose hemoglobin. Uh, this is a representation. Uh, this uh, is a representation of the proteins involved in the hemoglobin molecule. Uh, you can see the heme groups down here. These are oxygen-saturated. What's kind of neat and nifty about uh, the Protein Data Bank site is you can actually play with these molecules. You can rotate them around And even though it's a, still a two-dimensional representation of these complex molecules uh, and the uh, helices of the peptides in the um, uh, protein. It still will give you uh, respect for the dimensionality of receptors, and I think that's a good thing to have, especially if you don't come from a strong chemistry background. But I want you to get into the protein data bank, and just for your own edification, uh, play with this. Rotate it around, look at what, you know, consider yourself to be a toxicant, like a carbon monoxide, what would you have to do in terms of uh, where you would have to uh, go for the active site of the particular molecule. When we talk about toxicology, we are often talking about protein-chemical interactions, and so I want you to get a good idea for receptors, dimensionality of receptors, uh, um, beyond perhaps just uh, stick and ball drawings, uh, and get a little bit into dimensionality. We talked about the importance of toxicity rating. Uh, This uh, quick chart gives you uh, a classification, and this is oral-human dose. Uh, For average adults, obviously there is some concern, an increasing concern, about uh, these uh, toxicity ratings for children. Uh, Children eat uh, more on a body weight basis and as well in terms of toxicity. They are developing uh, many systems, their neurological systems. uh, Many uh, of their uh, overall processes are being developed early in their childhood, and so there can be these developmental impacts uh, in children. But we can go from uh, practically non-toxic, 15 grams per kilogram uh, uh, body weight, and that's more than a quart in terms of what the average adult uh, dose would be. Uh, So you'd have to expose yourself significantly. Uh, We go into very toxic, where we get into the 50 to 500 milligrams uh, per kilogram. And by the way, uh, many people don't understand kind of mass conversions, especially uh, in the US where we're dealing with uh, pounds and ounces. Uh, I always tell people uh, to weigh a nickel. A nickel is about five grams. And so it's a good idea, for example, um, in terms of slightly toxic, you'd have to eat something uh, about as heavy as a a nickel uh, for the average adult uh, to to be poisonous. So it's a macro quantity. You'd have to uh, be exposed in a fairly uh, massive way. Um, As opposed to some of these extremely toxic or super toxic, uh, less than five milligrams per kilogram, And so uh, this is these acute, uh, hypertoxic materials, uh, one drop, uh, the things like botulism uh, toxin. Finally, uh, this uh, gives you an idea of uh, the spectrum of uh, toxic doses. And this is uh, something we'll talk about, LD50s, or the lethal dose for 50% of a population. Uh, This is typically in animal trials. Uh, And LD is lethal dose, once again, Uh, and this is milligrams per kilogram uh, of body weight. And you can see, and Paracelsus tells us that the dose makes the poison, uh, that even things like uh, sodium chloride or table salt uh, can have a lethal dose. So as you go from ethanol to sodium chloride to uh, ferrous or iron sulfate, uh, morphine, phenobarbital, we start getting into DDT where we start getting into the 100 milligram per kilogram range. Uh, picrotoxin is an alkaloid uh, in plants. Uh, it's called the fishberry plant. I have a picture of it here uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, they call it the fishberry because uh, the particular uh, seed pods of this particular plant. If you throw them into the water, it's a neuromuscular uh, um, uh, toxicant. It actually paralyzes fish. Uh, We learn about a lot of the toxicants in nature from uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, Strychnine sulfate, uh, the LD50 is 2 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, It's a neuro-exciting drug, Um, it actually uh, has been used uh, in early parts of the last century as a uh, a doping stimulant in in athletics. Um, The early uh, years of the the, um, Tour de France, for example, in bicycle racing, uh, perhaps ancient history when compared to modern uh, doping concerns. But uh, it would be not unusual for uh, athletes to uh, take uh, wine uh, doped with strychnine as a, a way to make it up a hill. Uh, the nicotine, if you're a cigarette smoker, uh, the LD50 is one milligram per kilogram, uh, the uh, turbo curare. Is a curare uh, alkaloid uh, from uh, plant species Strychnos toxifera uh, in uh, South America. Uh, curare uh, poison arrow tips you see in the movies. Uh, uh, it's a uh, uh, muscle relaxant uh, uh, toxicant, uh, tetrodotoxin. We'll talk about in. Uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, target organ, um, or I'm sorry, ecological biochemistry uh, discussions. Uh, This is a toxin that comes through uh, uh, a uh, dinoflagellate in uh, uh, marine environments that gets bioaccumulated up the marine food chain such that the high predatory fish like groupers, barracuda, um, will have high-dose concentration in their tissues. Uh, This is a neurotoxin. Uh, Dioxin, uh, especially TCDD, tetrachlorodipenzodioxin, uh, the LD50, and this is a one microgram, not milligram anymore, one microgram per kilogram, so highly toxic. Uh, We'll talk about this in terms of its comparative toxicity aspects and some of the risk assessment challenges of dioxins uh, in uh, um, environmental toxicology. And finally, uh, a, a toxin from uh, bacteriogenesis, botulinus uh, toxin. Uh, you can see that this is uh, now in the order of uh, one one-hundredth of a microgram. Uh, and so the highly uh, toxic uh, protein uh, And this is uh, obviously something to be avoided in terms of uh, food preparation. Well, this gives you, uh, uh, I guess, a a briefing of some of the uh, concepts in toxicology. Uh, The idea here is, again, to try to give you a little bit of the familiarization of some of the terminology, some of the core definitions. Um, it's a little over the top in terms of some conceptual understanding. I don't expect you necessarily to understand all of the terminology, uh, toxicomechanics, toxicodynamics, uh, because we will deal with separate lectures on many of these core subject areas. But I think it's always best for students to hear these concepts several times in an introductory light. So don't get frustrated in terms of your, your grasp of this, don't be reaching for things. Your readings will introduce some of these concepts, but our further lectures will describe them as well. Next time, what we're going to do is a case study. And I try and do an early case study here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology to show you the application of some of the terminology to introduce you how toxicology is used before we get into the, the, the guts, if you will, of, of the discipline uh, and some of the, the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls concerns. We'll talk about uh, pesticides uh, and food residues. What we won't talk about is non-target or off-target environmental impacts. Uh, We have to focus it somewhere, and we'll choose to focus it on foods for human consumption. Until that time, we'll see you again. Thanks.